The following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Well, our text for today is Romans 2, uh, 17 through 29. So uh, that's uh, pretty ambitious for me to cover 13 verses um, in Romans of all places, but we're going to try and do that today. And and uh, that's the plan. But uh, Romans chapter 2, we're going to cover, yeah, uh, 17 to 29. But before, uh, before we uh, read the text, one of the, one of the great joys of Bible study is the joy of discovery. And uh, if you've uh, been a Christian long and spent much time in the Scriptures, I'm, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, that you know, maybe there's a passage you've read and studied many times and but one day you're reading through it and, and suddenly something just jumps off the page in a way that, that you've never quite seen before and, and all of a sudden a truth makes sense. It's just clear, like it's never been clear or, or maybe a, a new truth grips your soul that, that has never quite gripped you or maybe there's an application to your heart uh, that, that just uh, impacts you in a new way. And isn't it awesome when the Holy Spirit does that, when He brings His Word to life through the work of His Spirit, and, uh, and it's just a reminder to us that, that God's Word is powerful, it is deep, and, and you will never master the Bible in the sense that you understand every detail, every nook and cranny. There is always more to learn and always more ways for us to grow. And... Uh, Studying Romans 2, the last three weeks, has, has been that kind of experience for me. Because I've read Romans a lot of times, uh, but, but honestly, Romans 2 has never really gripped my soul. You know, so when I decided to preach through the book of Romans, I didn't decide to preach through Romans because I really wanted to preach Romans 2. It was kind of like, well, if I'm going to preach through Romans, I got to do chapter 2. And I wasn't quite sure... Uh, you know, how I was going to apply it or, or, or what significance there would be. Um, but, but I'm so thankful for, for how the Holy Spirit has uh, crystallized some ideas for me and feel like I, I understand this chapter and uh, understand its role in Romans so much better than I did before. And uh, you know, as I said, a, a few, three weeks ago, I was pretty nervous about how, how do we apply this, this very Jewish chapter, right? Because because this chapter is addressed to Jews, and as far as I know, I don't, I don't know of any Jews that we have in our church. So, so how are we going to apply this Jewish chapter to our Gentile congregation? But, but, but I can see now that this chapter is a whole lot more relevant uh, than, than I ever realized before. So, so praise the Lord that God's Word is powerful, and, and God's Spirit is at work among us. And today I'm going to plan to finish the chapter. And I believe that, that the Lord has a lot more for us in these last 13 verses. So let's read Romans 2, 17. Paul says, But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, 
do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who through having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Now, remember from from the last two weeks that uh, the basic purpose of Romans chapter 2 is to prove that that the Jews need salvation just like the Gentiles. Now, of course, that was a hard sell for the Jews. Because the Jews didn't think they needed salvation. They thought they were fine. And in particular, they thought they were fine. They thought they didn't need salvation for two reasons. First, they thought they were more righteous than the Gentiles. You think of the, the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know, and the Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I am not wicked like this other man. And so the, many of the Jews consider themselves to be very righteous. And then the second big reason why they didn't think they needed salvation, and this is really the one that is more important to Romans 2, is that they thought that God would basically give the Jews a free pass because they were Jews. God had given them the law. God had given them circumcision. And they believed that God favored them. And so, you know, even if they did sin then God would not hold them to the same standard as the Gentiles, and God would basically let all the Jews into heaven unless they were really bad. And, um, and so the biggest aha for me in my study of the last three weeks has been recognizing how big of a role that assumption plays uh, here in Romans chapter 2 and in the rest of the book. And so we're going to see again today that that assumption of Jewish privilege provides a vital backdrop to our text, and as well to, to a number of applications I want to make. And so, so that said, our text for today confronts two reasons why the Jews thought that God privileged them. So, so they, they depended on the fact that God gave us the law. Verses 17 through 24 talk about the fact that the Jews thought because God gave them the law, that meant that God would certainly let them into heaven. And the second reason for privilege that they thought was going to guarantee their acceptance in in verses 25 through 29 is circumcision. So so the fact that they had the law and the fact that they had circumcision, they thought meant that they were practically guaranteed a place in heaven. And so Paul begins in verses 17 through 24 by dealing with the law and confronting the vanity of, Turn that on. The vanity of externalism. 
Now, now verses 17 through 23 uh, consist of 15 descriptions of the Jews, which neatly divide into three groups of five, all right? So, so the first 10 descriptions of the Jews are all legitimate blessings, good things that God had done for them. But the last five are very confrontational. So, so notice that verses 17 and 18 describe five Jewish privileges. And again, these are all legitimate privileges in this life. And so the Jews were right to celebrate them and to say, see what God has done for us. And they were just wrong to think that the fact that God had given them these blessings in this life meant that they were guaranteed favoritism at the final judgment. So first of all, he says, you bear the name Jew. And of course, God chose the Jews, right, out of all the nations of the earth to be his special people. They belonged to God. And there's no question, it was a great privilege to be a member of the Jewish nation, to be a part of God's people. And then secondly, Paul says, they rely upon the law. Of course, the law was a wonderful blessing because it taught Israel who God is and and how they could have a relationship with Him. As Americans, we we rightly boast in the wisdom of our Constitution and, and the way our founders framed our nation. You know, think about the fact that Israel, like God wrote their constitution. That is quite the reason, a good reason, to boast. And then third, he says in verse 17, they boast in God. Now, there's a lot of bad reasons to boast, but, but boasting in God is not a bad reason to boast. I mean, we should be proud of, of a relationship to God and I think of Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. God says, or thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. And so the Jews were right to boast in the fact that they had a relationship with the God of the universe. And so should we. We should boast in our relationship to God. And then fourth, uh, verse 18 says that they know God's will. And that's, you know, that's a good one because sometimes we look at God's law as, as merely a burden. Like I would have so much fun if God were not binding me down and telling me what I can't do, right? And sometimes that's the only way we see God's law. But, but God says that his law is good. It, it tells us who God is and, and how to please him and how to live a wise and meaningful life. So to know the will of God in Scripture is a wonderful blessing. And, and then fifth, God's word is also a blessing because it enables people to approve the things that are excellent, being instructed from the law. Now, now the meaning of that phrase is, is a bit cloudy, But the idea seems to be that the law gave Israel a grid by which they could discern right from wrong and what is best from merely what is acceptable. And so the law gave Israel wisdom and discernment. And of course, I mean, we see that all the time, right? That it is, aren't you thankful for the wisdom of Scripture, right? 
Like, I, I don't think it's arrogant just at times, you know, look around and look at life guided by Scripture and look at people who are just flying by the seat of their pants and think, I am so thankful for the Word of God guiding me and giving wisdom as, as I try and navigate life. So, so those five items were all demonstra- de- demonstrations of God's blessing. And of course, as Christians, we have many of the same blessings as the Jews. And so we should give thanks for the privilege we have of knowing God and of knowing His will in this book. It is a wonderful blessing to know God and to know His will. And then verses 19 and 20 follow with five responsibilities that God had given to the Jews. And and again, these are things that the Jews legitimately boasted in. Blessings of God. So, So he says in verse 19, he says, you are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. Now, now when you read those verses, you can start to see a little bit of sarcasm creeping in, all right? Because the Jews weren't doing these things as well as they should, but, but the items themselves are, are very good things. So, so first of all, and, and we've been talking about this, uh, I want to mention that we've been talking about this some on Sunday nights, all right? That, that, that what Paul is describing here is, is that when God set Israel apart as a nation, he, he didn't set them apart to exclude all the other nations from the knowledge of God. No, when God called Israel on Mount Sinai, he told them that they were to be a kingdom of priests, that they were to mediate the knowledge of God to all the nations of the earth. And that was a tremendous honor, a, a tremendous privilege. And, and so in these verses, uh, Paul talks about these honorable responsibilities. So it was a privilege, uh, an, an honor to, to be, as Paul says, a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness. I think for us as Christians, we shouldn't bemoan God's call to take the gospel to the nations. We shouldn't look at the call to take the gospel to your neighbor as, as some, you know, oh man, you know, I, gotta, I need to share the gospel and I don't want to. No, no, we should consider it a wonderful gift that God has called us to share his word. And we should feel a humble sense of honor that God has given us this incredible stewardship of being his witnesses. And next, uh, Paul goes on and adds that that, that Israel was to correct the foolish and teach the immature. And of course, that was both within the nation of Israel and also all the nations of the earth. And they were to do so, he says, because in the law, they had the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. And isn't that a beautiful description of the Bible? The Bible is the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Now, we we don't just have fragments of God's truth. We have a complete and inspired word from God. And so so that is a wonderful blessing that that we have in this book. But, of course, Paul's telling him there that these blessings bring tremendous responsibility. It's not enough that you just know these things for yourself. I mean, 
The, 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 the fact that God gives you these blessings comes, brings with it the, the stewardship of, of bringing it to all people. I'm reminded of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount to, to a Jewish audience, which of course uh, still has application to us as Christians. He said in Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So God has given us the light, and he didn't give us the light so we could hide it, right? He gave us the light that we would let it shine and, and tell others about Christ. So, so in sum, verses 17 through 20 list 10 blessings that God gave to Israel in this world. And so at least in this life, God had clearly privileged the people of Israel. But, but then Paul makes a sudden turn and, and points out that Israel had tragically failed to fulfill its stewardship. In verses 21 through 24, describe Jewish failure. And in these verses, Paul asks five blistering questions of the Jews, and they're all ironic and tragic, considering the privileges of verses 17 through 20. So first of all, Paul just talked about how the Jews were proud of of their knowledge of God and and of the the fact that God had entrusted them with the Scriptures and entrusted them with the responsibility to, to share that light with all people. And so in light of that incredible privilege and incredible responsibility, verse 21 is very sharp and very ironic. He says, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Now for all their talk, the Jews didn't live what they had been taught. You know, they they had a, you know, do as I say, not as I do, teaching philosophy. And Paul's saying, instead, your philosophy should be practice what you preach. That they need to live what they were teaching if they were going to make an impact. And of course, that's a good challenge for many people today. There's a lot of people in our culture as well that they've lived their whole lives in a religious context. And if you've lived among religious people, you've lived among Christians or some other religious group, then there's the pressure to appear religious. But if you're not truly religious then you've got to somehow maintain the appearance. Look spiritual. Sound spiritual. You know, so it's amazing, for example, how many people, you know, love to debate theology or or love to set themselves up as teachers of God's Word. And you just look at them and think, you've got to live it before you're going to... Why are you so caught up in this little issue over here when you've got this sin that is like, glaring over here and so it does no good to be a teacher it does no good to prop up your knowledge of god if you're not actually living what you are teaching and god says teach yourself before you teach others and of course that's not saying that that no one should be a teacher or that you have to be perfect before you can be a teacher of god's word but it is saying it is very important that you submit to your own teaching before you teach others. And then the next three questions confront three specific and serious violations of the law. He goes on. 
You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, now the point here is not to say that all Jews, or even most Jews, were stealing things and committing adultery. No, instead, Paul is giving just broad examples uh, within the nation of Israel to demonstrate that, that just having the law, just having the Bible, just calling yourself a Christian for us today does not guarantee obedience to this book. So, 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 so Israel had these things among them. We have to obey it. So for example, you know, having the Ten Commandments and even preaching the Ten Commandments did not keep Israel from stealing and adultery. And sadly, that hasn't changed. There's lots of people that you would meet on the street. You know, you you come across them and, are you a Christian? And they're going to say, of course I'm a Christian. But then over here, they are literally stealing or living in adultery or or some other blatant violation of God's Word. And, And they think because they call themselves a Christian, it doesn't matter that they're doing this thing over here. Now, it's unclear uh, exactly what Paul is confronting with that next one there at the end of verse 22, uh, robbing temples, and, and, and that one could be anything from just irreverence or, or worshiping at the temple in a, in a, in a, in a sacrilegious way uh, to literally robbing temples, pagan temples, and there's some evidence of that sort of thing taking place. We don't know for certain what he's describing there, but the main point is clear. You know, knowing what is righteous... Having the Bible does not make someone righteous. And as a result, verse 23 asks the climactic question. You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? And uh, and so verse 17 said that Israel boasted in God. You know, God called them to glorify God in the earth, to worship Him. But all too often, instead of glorifying God, Paul says they dishonored God. Now, if you're a proud Jew, that's a tough pill to swallow. That God was dishonored by them instead of glorified. And it was so tough that that Paul actually adds a reference from the Old Testament to demonstrate that this is so. He says in verse 24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And that's a citation from Isaiah 52, verse 5. And, and so the context there is, is that it was towards the end of, of Old Testament history and, and Israel had, had disobeyed God for generations, for centuries. The northern kingdom is just about to go into captivity. The southern kingdom's not too far away. And, and God says that, they, that His name was blasphemed among the Gentiles. You know, Israel was to, was to glorify God in the earth. But they had disobeyed him. They were under the judgment of God. And as a result, the nations were not just mocking Israel. They were mocking Israel's God, whom they claimed to trust and who they said was going to protect them. So Israel was not making the nations glad by drawing them to God. No, they were driving them away. And it was all terribly tragic. So so that completes Paul's first major argument. He argues here in verses 17 through 24 that merely possessing the law 
does not make one righteous. And knowing the truth does not guarantee salvation or obedience to the truth. So, so before we move on, I'd like to make three very important applications. And the first is that God's blessings do not guarantee God's favor. Now, we've talked about this one a lot the last two weeks, that the fact that your life is blessed and comfortable, you've got a good job, you've got a nice family, you live in the United States of America, you know, the fact that your life is relatively comfortable does not equal God is pleased with you and you're going to be okay at the final judgment. And equally so, the fact that your life is hard, the fact that it's difficult, does not necessarily mean that God is upset at you, that you are going to fail at the final judgment. No, the only thing that matters is that you are saved in Christ and you are walking according to the will of God. That's the only thing that will matter someday. So so do not misinterpret the blessings of God as necessarily indicating the favor of God and, and, and favor at the final judgment. And the second application is pursue genuine godliness, not mere externalism. Yeah, and this one's important because, you know, it's generally true that where true religion, like sincere godliness, where true religion declines, it is often covered in a shroud of formalism and externalism. You know, so, so if I don't really have godliness down deep inside my heart, well, well, then I try and cover it up by really looking spiritual. I got to look away. I got to do certain things that will distract from what's really going on in my heart. And, and, and so people find ways to look spiritual, talk spiritual, do all the things that look spiritual, and, and they distract all for the purpose of distracting from the emptiness of their souls. And do not let that happen to you. You know, make sure that, that first and foremost, you are born again and that you are striving not merely to keep up appearances for the people at life point, nor to keep your Christian parents off your back, but that there is sincere godliness in your heart and a sincere desire to obey God's will and to please Him. And then third application, hypocrisy dishonors God and damns sinners. Now, I've, I've, I've mentioned this before, but I remember Dr. Ola, who was the president of the college I went to, would often say that the hardest children to reach with the gospel are children who grow up in the homes of hypocrites. You know, they go to church, and they know how to play the game. They, they wear the right clothes. They say all the right things. They're involved in all the right ministries. And people at church look at them and think, wow. What a Christian. And then the kids go home and they see mom and dad at home and, and it's all just a show. There's something entirely different at home. There's no fruit of the Spirit. There's deceit. There's, there's, there's nastiness. There's no work of the Spirit. And, and so they just learn to see Christianity as a game. A game that you play to keep up appearances and to look good in front of others without any genuine, sincere, transforming power of Christ in the heart. So, you know, putting on a religious show, you know, coming in here and appearing spiritual and impressing the people of our church, it might make you feel really good about yourself. 
but it blasphemes God's name. And it potentially embitters those around you to the truth claims that you try to preach. So if the Spirit is convicting you of hypocrisy, I mean, you know that, that what you are here is not what you really are. That, then I hope that you will repent of that and change. Because and God says that his name was blasphemed by the hypocrisy of the Jews. So, so verses 17 through 24 expose the vanity of externalism. And merely possessing the law would not earn the Jews favor with God, and neither will any form of externalism that we might build up today. And then verses 25 through 29 confront a second source of pride that the Jews thought guaranteed God's favor, and that was the right of circumcision. And in these verses, Paul drives home the value of sincerity. Now, now talking here about circumcision, uh, Genesis 17 verse 11 says that God instituted circumcision as a sign of the covenant that he made with Abraham. And so, so circumcision was to be the physical expression of the fact that Abraham and his descendants had been set apart from the nations as God's people. Now, to us, as Gentiles, it might sound really strange to boast in something like circumcision, but, but that's exactly what the Jews did. It was a major source of pride and a major source of, of, of just feelings of superiority. And in fact... Some Jews even taught that no circumcised individual would be cast into hell. No circumcised individual would be cast into hell. It'd be similar to how I remember going to a funeral as a kid of someone that I knew was not a godly man. You know, and the pastor gets up and says, well, you know, this guy's old. You know, he was baptized as an infant. And you know, the assumption is he was baptized as an infant. That guarantees that he's in heaven today. And and so we do similar sorts of things. And so the Jews took tremendous pride in it. They they thought that that their circumcision practically guaranteed their salvation. So so it was the ultimate sacred cow among the Jews. But verses 25 through 27 argue that obedience trumps circumcision. Look at what Paul says in verses 25 through 27. He says, For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcised. We'll stop there for now. And I don't want us to miss the fact that Paul doesn't say that the Jews' circumcision was worthless. So he doesn't say, you know, who cares? Rather, he begins, indeed, your circumcision is of value. All right? But there's a condition. That, you know, and, and the condition is, is that you must practice the law. So, so, so circumcision was a good thing, right? I, I mean, to, to be a member of the nation of God's people, to have access to the law, to have access to the sacrificial system in Jerusalem. Those are wonderful gifts for the Jews. But that value went poof if you did not actually practice the law. So therefore... Paul adds a statement that would be absolutely devastating to a Jew. He says at the end of verse 25, if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Now that's devastating 
Because circumcision was a mark of national pride. So the Jews thought it marked them off as better than all those dirty Gentiles, all those uncircumcised peoples around them. So for Paul to call a Jew uncircumcised was terribly offensive. It's like if I walked up to you and called you a communist traitor. You probably wouldn't appreciate it. It's something like that. So so why does Paul say this? And what exactly does he mean? Well, Well, Paul's point here is fairly simple. A physical outward symbol cannot replace genuine obedience. It doesn't matter what you call yourself. It doesn't matter what you look like. God will not accept the transgressor of the law. So so once again, be warned that if you are banking on making it to heaven because of some outward symbol, because of your family name, you know, all the Olsons are Christians and they're all going to heaven. You know, or uh, you're banking on uh, something else, uh, what you look like. You know, your, your nationality, whatever it might be, calling yourself an American, your God experience that you had at some point in your life, or whatever else it is that is an outward form that you are clinging to, that you are hoping will get you favor with God at the final day. Those things won't cut it. They don't change the judgment of God. So so they can't come remotely close to atoning for for all the ways that we disobey God's law. So, So it might be true that you legitimately are better than the guy down your street or the guy in the cubicle next to you. You might be more religious and more spiritual. But but don't stake your eternity on some exterior symbol or some worldly hope that something you have is going to earn you favor at the final judgment. But, But if circumcision doesn't save, well, what does? Well, verses 26 and 27 give a partial answer. Paul says, so if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who through having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? Now, now first of all, you can imagine Paul's Jewish opponent here that his head is about to explode because he would be furious, right? That Paul would say that some dirty Gentile could jump him in line of the favor of God. God accept an uncircumcised Gentile over me? How dare you say such a thing? So, but God says that he can't. So, so how can the uncircumcised man gain acceptance with God? Well, Paul says he keeps the requirements of the law. Now, now, like a few other statements in this chapter, that sounds like it contradicts what's coming later in the book of Romans, right? You know, so, so Paul is going to argue vehemently in Romans 3 and 4 that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That works do not earn us a place in heaven. And so we've read it the last two weeks. Let's read it again. Romans 3 verse 28 is very clear. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. 
So, so Paul is very clear about that fact. So, so, so how can he say that? We are saved by faith through Christ, and then turn around in chapter 2 and say that the person who is going to be accepted of God is the one who keeps the law. Well, the best way, I think, to understand this uncircumcised man who keeps the law is to assume that Paul is here talking about a Gentile Christian who's saved by grace through faith in the gospel, but then obeys the law by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think we can, I think it's clearly what Paul means because if you notice what he says in verse 29, verse 29 says, He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit. So, so this ability to keep the law does not come from the person, right? It comes from the Holy Spirit's work in the individual's heart. So the Holy Spirit transforms the heart of that person who is truly saved. So verses 26 and 27 are not saying that, that a Gentile can just decide one day, you know what, I'm going to obey the law and I'm going to earn my way to heaven. That, that's not the point that Paul is trying to make. No. Chapter 3, verse 28 says, he is justified by faith. And just to support that, a turnover and notice what Paul says in Romans 8. Look at what Paul says in Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. And Paul here says, again, he's still talking to the Jew. He says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So what's he saying there? That when you get saved, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside your heart, and through the power of the Spirit, you can fulfill the works of the law. You can obey God. So, so the gospel does not just give you a ticket to heaven. It changes who you are, and it produces genuine obedience. Now, we want to emphasize, it's not perfect obedience. We will always be, we will be sinners till the day that we die. But, but it is very different. This heart obedience is very different from the externalism uh, of the unbelieving Jew that we just looked at. And, and so God changes us. And, and it truly, and, and this change, this, this new obedience, it truly pleases the Lord. And by the way, this is not some new, radical, New Testament idea. You know, I mean, Samuel said to King Saul, says in 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel said to Saul, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. And we saw the same heart over and over last year in our study of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, that, that God wants something much deeper than just external religiosity. He wants genuine heart change that produces sincere obedience to his will. So, so I want to ask you, what defines your faith? What defines your faith? You know, why do you believe you're going to heaven someday? 
And Romans is going to be clear that if your answer to that question is anything other than the finished work of Jesus on the cross, then you are trusting in the wrong thing. You know, if you're trusting in, your, in your, your family heritage as Christians, just the fact that you call yourself a Christian, or, 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 or you know, that you take care of your family, or you have a good job, or you work hard, if you're trusting in any of those things, other than the finished work of Christ, you, you, you are not ready to meet the Lord. And if you are a Christian, then what do you really value about your Christianity? You, know, you might be saved, but you know, kinda, you're in a calloused place and you are just sort of playing the game, keeping up appearances. I mean, you're a wretch all week at home, but then you walk in here and you clean yourself up, you say all the things you know you're supposed to say at church, but that's not what's in your heart. You know, then, then Paul would say to you that, that you need to repent of those things and you need to strive for genuine holiness and obedience that comes from the work of the Spirit in your life. So, so do not be content with, with that, you know, just exterior formalism. No, realize that God delights in genuine obedience and then obey God from the heart because obedience trumps circumcision. Then finally, Verses 28 and 29 teach that a circumcised heart trumps a circumcised flesh. Look at what Paul says in Romans 2, 28 and 29. He says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, meaning they're the letter of the law. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Now again, try to imagine how that statement would sting this proud Jewish opponent of Paul. Or just think of how it would sting Paul before he met Christ on the road to Damascus. Now Paul says that circumcision does not make someone a Jew. That would have really hurt. Now of course we have to understand Jew here in context. So, so Paul is not denying the reality of the Jewish nation. And he's not denying a future for Israel in God's purposes. So, so God's going to make that very clear in Romans 9 through 11. Now instead, he is using Jew here as a symbol of the true children of Abraham. So, so just remember in Genesis chapter 12, God called Abraham and he said, In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So, so, so God's promise was not merely to the people who were physically circumcised. He said that Messiah would come, Jesus, and he would bring blessing to all people, and we know through faith in him. So, so when he talks here about a Jew, he is talking about those who are in the family of God, people who are recipients of the salvation that is in Jesus. And therefore, Paul is saying that the true mark of God's acceptance is not an outward mark like circumcision or anything else in your body like your ethnicity or your physical appearance, you know, how you present yourself, what, what clothes that you wear, or, or, or anything else like that. No, the true mark of God's acceptance is inward. And more specifically, the true mark of God's acceptance is what he calls here heart circumcision. 
Now, now this evening, uh, we're going to talk about this some more. We're going to take a tour through the Bible, Lord willing, and, and see this concept of heart circumcision that comes up over and over in the Old Testament and how it transitions into the new birth in, in the New Testament. And, and so this is very important. You know, as Samuel told Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. And, and, and folks, we need more than just an exterior form. We need genuine heart transformation. You know, and, and, and that's worth emphasizing because I've heard many people you know, justify their disobedience to God's commands over here because of all that they've got going for God over here. You know, it happens where we're pastors. You know, pastors will, will justify, you know, alcohol abuse or pornography or even something like adultery because of all that they're doing for God. You know, there's, I mean, all sorts of stories that have come out in the last, you know, decade, decade and a half of guys that, I mean, they're living in clear sin. You know, but they're like, how dare you fire me as a pastor because, because of all I'm doing for God. You know, our hearts are incredibly deceitful. And we can come up with justification for all sorts of craziness. You know, other professing Christians, they know how to show up on Sunday and wear the right clothes and say the right things and do all the right stuff. But their lives at home don't show any evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. They're angry, they're nasty, they're deceitful. So I want to urge you, do not tolerate that shadow of godliness. Pursue a godly, circumcised heart that drives an increasingly godly life. And of course, we have to emphasize again, all right, that this circumcised heart is not ultimately a human achievement, right? No, no, verse 29 says, that you are not a Jew who is one outwardly, but a Jew is one who is inward, and circumcision is that of the heart by the Spirit, So this is something that God's Holy Spirit does. It is a miraculous work of His. As we've said, when someone is truly born again, the Holy Spirit indwells us and He changes us. Look again over at at chapter 8. And I want to read verses 5 through 10 because because this really uh, helps us understand well what Paul is saying. Chapter 8, verse 5. So we just read verse 4 a few minutes ago. Verse 5 says, for those, and notice the contrast in these verses. There's two kinds of people in the world. He says, for those who are according to the flesh, speaking of the unbeliever, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness." So so God's Holy Spirit is the only one that can produce the genuine obedience that pleases God. So so if you have a wicked heart and you're sitting there today and you're thinking, man, I'm I'm lost. I'm doomed. 
I want to emphasize that God is not commanding you to fix yourself. God is not commanding you to fix yourself. No. You need to be born again by God's Spirit. And you can receive that miracle of of new birth, of regeneration today, if you will just repent of your sin. You will agree with God about who He is and about how you have sinned against His will, and you put your faith in what Jesus accomplished on the cross as your only hope of salvation. And you can be born again. You know, Jesus, I think of John chapter 3, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was one of the most respected spiritual teachers in Israel of his day. And what does Jesus say to him right off the bat? You must be born again. He says it to the cream of the crop. We all need to be born again. And Jesus is making the same appeal to you that he made to Nicodemus. You can never be good enough. There's no amount of exterior forms you can come up with that are going to get you into heaven someday. You need to be born again. And if you are saved, lean into the grace that God has provided in the gospel and in the work of the Spirit. And He's given you those means of grace in His Word and through the church and other places. And so you can't produce spiritual fruit on your own. You need the Holy Spirit to do it in you. And He will as you lean into the disciplines of grace that he has provided. So folks, let's not be content with external formalism or or any other fake spiritual identity. No, pursue genuine spiritual commitment that grows out of the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the admonition of this text. And God, I pray for any who are here who do not know Christ as Savior, that today they would be born again. And for those of us that know you as Savior, Lord, help us not to fall into a rut of externalism and formalism, but Lord, help us every day to lean in on the means of grace that you have provided and the power of the Spirit to mold us and shape us and change us. Oh God, help us to be people who truly please you and truly honor you and then take that message to everyone around us. In Jesus' name, amen.